Well, we'll be in Isaiah 53 this morning, if you'd like to turn there, Isaiah 53. This morning, we're celebrating the Bethlehem candle, so that's what we just lit just a moment ago, and the passage that was read was from the book of Micah. Micah was written in the 8th century, so like 700 years before Jesus showed up, the prophet Micah was inspired by God to write this very specific prophecy about where the Messiah would be born. And, and actually, it's quite interesting. So he, he names this one little town, Bethlehem, out of all of the towns and cities and places in the world, out of this little town, the Messiah would be born. That's remarkably specific. It's actually passages like that prophecy in Micah that give us reason to believe the Bible really is true. That something so specific could be written many centuries before Jesus arrived and then Jesus would fulfill it perfectly. So fascinating prophecy. What I want to really focus on this morning, though, as we think about the Bethlehem candle, is I want us to to think about what do we learn about Jesus, about the Messiah, from the fact that he chose to be born in Bethlehem. Because Jesus, he isn't like us. Like, we don't get to choose where we're born. Our parents make that choice. We're kind of just along for the ride, right? You're just born where you're born. Jesus, so he's God. He is eternal and omnipotent and sovereign and, and knows all things. So Jesus, out of all human beings, he alone got to choose where he would be born. And he chose Bethlehem. So what does that tell us about the character of Jesus? Well, let's talk about Bethlehem for a moment. There's actually not a lot to say. Tiny little town about five miles south of Jerusalem. It was always overshadowed by Jerusalem, which of itself was also overshadowed by much larger cities in the rest of the known world at that time. So if you want a a modern-day comparison, you could think of, of Rome as the New York of the day. Well, then Jerusalem would be the Bryan College Station. You know, not tiny, but nothing compared to that. Well, then Bethlehem is Snook. It's a one-stop sign kind of town. You can just drive right through it and not realize you were there. Tiny little town of Bethlehem. So small, in fact, that when Joseph and Mary show up and, and she's pregnant, there's no room in the inn because it wasn't big enough to like accommodate a lot of visitors. Like No one vacationed in Bethlehem. It wasn't a significant city. No one really thought about Bethlehem. It's, it's interesting. There's a couple lists of cities in the Old Testament where the author lists out all of the cities and towns in Judah. And we know Bethlehem existed in that day, but it wasn't even significant enough to make it on the list of towns in Judah. No one thought about it. It was incredibly insignificant, easily forgettable. And that's interesting when you think about the fact that the king of kings would would choose to be born in a place like that, because that's not how it works, right? Like kings get born in palaces, Kings get born in mansions, in capital cities. They get born in in places that are the center of of power and influence. And yet Jesus chose, the only one who ever got to choose, he chose an incredibly tiny, insignificant, obscure place to be born. And when you think about the life of Jesus, that fits well. That's really fitting. He kind of made that choice throughout his life. Max Licato puts it this way. He came... Not as a flash of light or as an inapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were, were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla at all. That's Jesus' 
birth and life. No hoopla at all. He easily could have had fame. He could have had wealth. He could have had fanfare. And yet he consistently chose obscurity and humility and poverty, which is the exact opposite of what you would think a king would have. The things that you would think would go with being the king, Jesus chose the exact opposite through his entire life. And that's the point of Isaiah 53. This prophecy we're going to read this morning, written, this one's about 800 years before Jesus showed up. God leads Isaiah to talk about Jesus. Now, Isaiah didn't know the name Jesus. You won't see Jesus here. You'll see the, the Messiah, the servant whom God would choose and whom God would send to earth. Isaiah is going to talk about the life and death of, of this coming king, this coming Messiah. And, and it's very interesting. I think there's a few things to notice here that fit the pattern that, that Lucato is talking about here, this pattern of, of, of choosing obscurity and poverty and humility. The first thing Isaiah wants us to wrestle with is that when Jesus came, he would choose an unremarkable body. So look with me, chapter 53, verse 1. Isaiah asks, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the Messiah, the servant that God would send, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, let me define a few key words here. In verse 2, when it says tender shoot, that sounds nice, sounds fun. No, it's not. Tender shoot in Hebrew, it's talking about the sucker shoot that comes out of the base of a tree that's unattractive, that's actually growth you need to cut off the tree so the tree can be healthy. It's something you throw away from the tree. That would be Jesus. He would be the thing people want to prune off the tree and get rid of. And then Isaiah said he would... He would be like a root out of parched ground, so a little plant trying to grow out of cracked soil. When you think about like God's king showing up and a metaphor for that, you would think of like a mighty oak tree growing near, near a stream of clear crystal water, but that's not Jesus. He would be like a parched, withered plant that you kind of just want to yank out of the soil and put it out of its misery doesn't look like it even belongs there. And the point that Isaiah is making is that Jesus would have no handsome form, no majestic appearance to attract us to him. The circumstances of his body, how he dressed, what he had, his possessions, none of it would be interesting. None of it would be wealthy. None of it would be attractive. Jesus would live the kind of life that um, if he went to high school, picture this, there's no high school back then, but if he went to high school, no one would have voted Jesus to be most likely to succeed. No one would have chosen him as most handsome or most popular. None of those things would fit Jesus. In fact, if he went to high school, and then let's say he went back to his high school reunion 10 years later, no one would have remembered him because he was completely forgettable. There was nothing remarkable at him at all. It it is interesting. If you look at the four books that are written about Jesus, so we're talking about the four Gospels, Matthew through John, if you add them all up, they have 3,779 verses. And guess what you will not find in any of them? A single description of his appearance. We know nothing about what he looked like. That's not true for other people in the Bible. We're told King Saul was head and shoulders taller than his countrymen. We're told King David had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Of King Absalom, it is said in all of Israel, there was no one as handsome as him. But of Jesus' complete silence. Nothing about his appearance. Why? Because no one noticed it. 
He's completely forgettable. He's, he's, there's nothing attractive, nothing interesting about him. What's funny to me is how ironic it is the kind of men they choose to play Jesus in the movies. They're all super handsome men. They have like chiseled features and piercing eyes. No, <laughs> that's not what Jesus looked like. All of that was bad casting. Every single person there. They're all way too handsome. Jesus would not have been handsome at all. Not at all. And what's so amazing is that's what he chose. And that's a wake-up call for us living in an appearance-obsessed culture. The one and only human being who ever got to pick his body chose a body that was completely forgettable. Not attractive. Not beautiful. Not handsome. Not ripped. None of that. I mean, he, you realize he could have chosen to show up like Henry Cavill's Superman. That's what he could have looked like. And he chose to look like someone whom everyone would forget. Nothing about him would attract us to him. Okay, so again, this, this, this paradigm, this pattern throughout Jesus' life, he's choosing humility, obscurity, poverty. So that's the first thing that we see. He, he chose an unremarkable body. Second thing that, that Isaiah tells us to prepare for, Jesus would choose an unpopular life. Look with me at verse 3. It says, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Now again, let me point out a few words here for you. When it says despised, um, in English that carries the idea of hatred, like you hate the guy. That's not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, that word despised, it means that you wouldn't want to be around him. It describes cold indifference. You just, you'd rather not ever be around that kind of guy. And the point is, Isaiah is saying, Jesus would live the kind of life that no one wants to associate with. No one would want to be his friend. No one would want to be connected to him. Why? Well, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, the reason, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. By looking like other men and by sharing in human nature, but particularly the human nature of a slave. That's the life that Jesus chose. And you can pretty much guarantee if someone's a slave, they're not popular. We don't want to be around a person who is living as a slave. And yet that is the life that Jesus chose. He freely chose of all, popu- of all possible lives. He could have chosen the life of a conqueror or a king or a warrior or a celebrity. He chose the life of a slave. A life that no one would want to be associated with. And the result is it tells us he was forsaken. That happened quite literally. He was abandoned by everybody. When he hung on the cross, he was completely alone. He, He was actually hanging on the cross. He would have been stripped naked and put on public display at the major intersection of highways outside Jerusalem for everyone to laugh at and mock at. That was part of the point of crucifixion. You wanted to shame the person. You wanted to utterly humiliate him. And so he was hanging, completely forsaken, completely alone, and laughed at by the world, naked and abused. He he knows exactly what betrayal feels like. He knows what it feels like to be humiliated because he was. And so he chose this unpopular life that was full of, Isaiah tells us, full of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That means pain. It means illness. That word um, grief, it actually, it, it typically is used as someone who, who faces an incurable illness. 
They're dying of some incurable disease. And Isaiah said, that's, that's the kind of life he's going to live. It's as if he is chronically ill. He's dying of an illness. And no one wants to be around him in that moment. And that's the result. Isaiah tells us he will be the kind of person from whom men hide their faces. And we don't, we don't have as much of that here today in America. It's harder for us to connect with this. I saw this so when I went to India. I was an engineer recently out of A&M, and I went to Mumbai, India, and we were being driven around the capital city. It's a massive city, bigger than any city in in America population-wise. Massive city, and there's a ton of wealth in that city, but there's also a ton of poverty. And I remember there was this moment, I'll never forget it, it's etched in my memory as deep as anything else. We were riding in this nice car being chauffeured, because that's how it works. As an engineer, I'm being chauffeured. No one in America ever chauffeured me as an engineer, but in India, they did, and they're chauffeuring me down this major highway, and standing in the middle of the highway, and we passed at a relatively slow speed, was an old man who was a leper. I've, I've never like actually seen a leper, but he, he couldn't wear clothing, so he's filthy and covered in sores, and it was interesting to look around and see everyone turn away. No one would look at him. And, and there's a part of me in my gut that like I, I, I saw for a moment, I had to look away. It was just so awful. It was so tragic and so full of pain. That's, that's what Isaiah is saying. That's Jesus. When he's hanging on the cross, no one wants to look at that. No one wants to see that kind of life. He is going to choose the kind of life that you can't even stomach to look at. It's going to be so full of grief and suffering. Jesus is the only person who could have ever chosen a life of comfort and fame and celebrity, and yet he chose to be like that old leper walking the streets in Mumbai, India. He freely chose that life. Why would he choose that kind of life? Because it led to the third choice that he made. So he's chosen an unremarkable body. He's chosen this unpopular life. And finally, he chooses a selfless death. And it's really, it's the second one that leads to the third. Because how could the whole culture, the whole society he lived in, get to the point where they would yell, let's crucify this innocent man? I mean, he hadn't done anything wrong. How could they get to the point of such hatred that they would want to crucify him? Well, he had lived such an incredibly unpopular life that they were led to kill him. So the crucifixion, when we think about that, that's verses 4 through 6. So Isaiah says, starting in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. If you look at what... Isaiah is saying here, it's interesting, at the end of verse 4, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. That phrase, smitten of God, means punished by God. The point is, the human race would look upon Jesus and assume God is punishing him. That's actually true. God did punish Jesus, but not for sins he had committed. It was for our sins. And that's what Isaiah describes here in in verse 5. Jesus was pierced, literally, with nails and with a spear, but he was pierced for us, for our 
transgressions. And he was crushed. That means to be pulverized, like trampled to death for, for our iniquities. And the chastening, the, the cutting that we deserve for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, his whipping, we are healed. And the point that Isaiah is unpacking here is that Jesus took all of this crushing death, this painful death, this torture for us. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be healed. He took the punishment that our sin and our rebellion deserved. He took it all for us out of love. He took it all freely for us. And that, that's summarized in the metaphor in verse 6. We're the sheep who have gone astray. We're the sheep who rebelled. Who, who chose selfishness and, and pride and violence. And all of the things that human beings choose. We chose that. And yet God caused all of that sin, all of that evil to fall upon him. And he freely took it for us. He chose that selfless death for us. And I think if I had to summarize all that we're seeing in Isaiah 53, we live in a culture, in a, in a world that puts self above all. And yet we worship a savior who put all above self. That's the basic idea of his life. He put everyone above himself. Now, that's probably not new truth to most of you. You've seen this before. You've thought about this to some extent before. The question is, what do we do with it? Because we're not like Jesus. We, we don't get to choose what our body is going to be like. We don't get to choose the circumstances of our life or death. And so how do we apply a passage like this? When we look at what Jesus chose, this, this humiliation, this poverty, this deprivation, how do we apply that? Well, I want to make sure you don't, don't apply it by feeling guilty. Like if, if you happen to be attractive, if you happen to be popular, if you get to live a long and comfortable life, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. That's not the point of this passage. That's not what God is trying to get us to do. What do we do with the choices that Jesus makes? I'm, I'm going to give you three applications, three things that I think this is saying to us. So how do we apply Isaiah 53, 1 to 6, in this season, Christmas season, in our lives and for our families? Well, the first thing, maybe unexpected, I think that Isaiah 53, 1 to 6 helps you trust that Christianity isn't made up. Because who's going to make up a story like this? Like, if you're going to write a story about a God showing up to earth, who would write a story where the God shows up like this? Like, I totally understand a God showing up and looking like Chris Hemsworth. Thor, yeah, they made a whole movie about that. That makes perfect sense. But the idea of your deity, your creator, your king of kings, choosing to show up like this in an unattractive body, living an unpopular, forsaken life, and then dying a a horrible, painful death, and he didn't get to zap anyone, not at any point in his life. Like, no one makes up that story because we can't imagine it. That's not what humans think about. That's not the stories we create. No one would make this stuff up. And so the only reasonable explanation for why it would happen this way is that it really did. This is the crazy life God chose that no other human being would ever choose. I think that stories like Isaiah 53 and then how you see it playing out in the Gospels, in reality, it gives strength to your faith. Because you realize no one would make up a religion like this because it's nuts. The best explanation, and this is really what God chose to do. 
So I think that's the first little application I walk away with. Second application from Isaiah 53 that I walk away with. I think Christmas, as we look at it through the grid of Isaiah 53, it motivates us to connect this time of year with those who are most like Jesus, as he's described in this passage. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. As I study passages like this, I, I end up always preaching on passages like this at the same time of the year that my family is celebrating Christmas with our little kids. And And I've noticed that there's this disconnect, and you probably feel it too. There's a disconnect in the hearts of Christians at the time of Christmas over how we think about Christmas in America and how we celebrate it. Because as Christians, we want to make sure that the major point of Christmas is this image, right? That Jesus being born in a manger, being born in the tiny town of Bethlehem. We know that's the reason for the season. That's the core, the story of, of Jesus born into humility, the Son of God becoming this, this poor little child. We, we know that. We want that. We love that. But we also love this. We love getting to celebrate Christmas with our family and friends in a beautiful house, around a beautiful tree and a warm fireplace and full stockings and wonderful rich food and friendship. And we love that. And it's important to notice there's nothing wrong with the image on the right. But the key is to notice the image on the right is not connected to the image on the left. There's nothing that connects those two together. Because Jesus was not born into an upper middle class family living in a nice home. That's the exact opposite of what he was born into. There's no connection there. Jesus chose to be born into complete poverty. He had no home. Not just a poor home. No home. He was born among animals in a dirty manger, laid in hay. He had nothing. He was as poor as they come. And he wasn't born into warmth. He was born into scandal. Think about it. He was born to an unwed mother. And they didn't know about the whole virgin birth thing. Community didn't understand that. They thought that this was a scandal in the making. And then no sooner is he born than he has to run from his country. Because he's fleeing from Herod's persecution. Jesus lived his baby years as a refugee in Egypt. He had nothing, no home, no safety, no security. That is the life of the first child is celebrating Christmas. And it's so different than the kind of lives we celebrate with our children. And, And the point of me telling you this is not to make you feel guilty for spending time on the right side of that screen. That's okay. God wants you to enjoy the warmth and the friendship and the nice home and all of those wonderful things. But he wants to make sure you're also spending time with people living on the left. He he wants you to celebrate Christmas by choosing to step out of the image on the right. For some of the time, it doesn't have to be all of Christmas, but for some of the time... Leave the image on the right because you recognize that's not Christmas. That's not what it was like. And choose to walk into the image on the left. And find ways to live life and to, to connect with people who are actually living out the reality of Jesus. The poor, the refugees, the homeless, the people who, who don't have security, the people who don't have a stable family, the people from broken homes, the people suffering. That is the Christmas story. And so how do you do that practically? How do you and your family step out of the right for a time and spend time on the left of that image? Well, I would challenge you, especially if you're parents, to think about starting a new tradition where part of the Christmas season is spent intentionally leaving the nice, comfortable home on the right 
and connecting with those on the left who are living that poor, that, that refugee, that, that unstable life, who are struggling with that. Now, practically how to do that, well, the best advice I have to you is to shoot an email off this afternoon to communityoutreach at grace-bible.org and, and just write that email address and say, I, my family, we're looking for a new way, to, or like a new tradition this holiday season. How can we connect with someone in need in the community in a practical way? And they'll get back to you. They'll let you know. Uh, let me rattle off a few that you might think of. Just get some ideas. Flowing. This is nowhere close to exhaustive, but this list will maybe get you thinking about some new traditions your family could participate in. So, one I love, your family could get involved building a Habitat for Humanity house. I did that when I was a college student. Super fun. Amazing way to help a family actually have a home, which is exactly the kind of thing that connects well with Christmas, Jesus being homeless. You can help someone have a great home. So get involved with Habitat for Humanity. We have a great one here in this town. You can volunteer with the Bee Community that meets here at Southwood. Um, Amazing opportunity. You can volunteer with Aggieland Pregnancy Outreach and Hope Pregnancy Center. I mean, they're kind of ministering to women who are, in a sense, the closest culturally to what Mary would have, would have experienced. Um, I was told recently Hope Pregnancy Center in particular is looking for volunteers right now, so great ways to get involved, APO or Hope Pregnancy. You and your family can serve in a soup kitchen or serve with, with the food bank or the church pantry helping people who don't have enough food. That's an ongoing need, this amazing ministry here in our, in our community with the food bank, with the church pantry. You can sign up to volunteer on a regular basis with one of them. Um, you can research and get involved in helping refugees. That's, that's like exactly the life Jesus was living. So you can think about what can my family do to help those who are without a home, who are without stability, who are refugees. Um, you can um, give some of that Christmas money, maybe some of the decoration money, some of the gift money to charities here in town who are helping people in need. Charities are always looking for funds to come in during the Christmas season. This is when they build up their budget for the next year ahead and all the ministry that they'll be doing. Um, you can get involved right here at Southwood this week. We have our Christmas co-op. We'll be setting it up Tuesday, I think is a day, and then it'll go for the next few days. We would love to have help getting that all together. Just talk to anyone with like a staff name badge out in the foyer and we'll get you signed up to help with the Christmas co-op. There are an incredible number of opportunities to help out people in the community who are like Jesus having his kind of Christmas during this holiday season. I think the the point that I'm trying to get you to understand, we're missing the whole point of Christmas, the whole context of Christmas if we don't intentionally connect with those who are living like Jesus lived. Far from luxury, far from wealth, far from security. So I, I encourage you as an individual, as a family, to find ways this holiday season to bridge the gap and to connect with people who are living like he did. Hear their stories, listen to them, get a sense of the lives that they're living, and then look for ways where you can practically minister to their needs. Okay? That's a part of what Christmas should look like for us. Third, application from Isaiah 53. I think to celebrate Christmas well, you have to celebrate Christmas by remembering Good Friday. You have to look at Christmas through the lens, if you will, of Good Friday, because Isaiah 53 is really clear. The whole point of the incarnation was the crucifixion. Like When Jesus came, he didn't come to just hang out on earth, just enjoy what earth could provide. He came to die. 
It's, it's a really direct logical connection in Isaiah 53. He was incarnate as a human so that he could live and die and rise for us. That, that was the point. That was where it was all going. So Christmas, when you think about Christmas, you have to remember it's, it's overshadowed by the cross. When you think about Christmas versus the cross, Christmas is the smaller holiday. It's the less significant holiday. Because it is meaningful at Christmas that the Son of God took on human flesh. That's a big thing. But that's a smaller thing than that the Son of God chose to die for us. That's the bigger thing. That's the more amazing thing. So if you want to understand the significance of Christmas, you have to look through and past Christmas at Easter and Good Friday. That's what it's all about. That's where it's all leading to. The greatest gift that God gave humanity did not occur on Christmas. It occurred on Good Friday when he gave his life for us. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus chose not only to be born. I mean, that's a big deal. But not only to be born, but to live a perfect life as a servant to us. And then to die for us and rise for us so that he could earn for us forgiveness and eternal life that he gives to us as a free gift. Isaiah 53, he, he did all the work. He did all the, the goodness and, and the sacrifice that was required to earn your healing, to earn your forgiveness, to earn your salvation. And now he offers them to you for free. All you have to do is say, yes, I want that. I, I love that. Just accept that from Jesus. Jesus earned those for you, not at Christmas, but at Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And so we celebrate Christmas by looking at Good Friday. And so if you've said yes to that gift, if you said, Jesus, thank you for dying for me and rising for the dead so that I could have forgiveness as a free gift, well, my encouragement to you over Christmas, a lot of people are going to tell you to read like Luke 2, the Christmas story. You should. It's good stuff good stuff to read. But I would encourage you, reserve a little bit of time to reread Isaiah 53 and then one of the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels. You say, man, that doesn't kind of feel like Christmas to me. No, but that's why you got to read it. (laughs) You got to force yourself to look past the nice decorations to what's coming, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So take some time this holiday season. You could read like Matthew 26 through 28 great three chapters all the way from crucifixion through resurrection, or Isaiah 53. Read it, and then I'd encourage you to discuss it with friends, with family, with your kids. If you're parents, this is a great thing to talk about with your kids. Read with your kids that the whole reason he came was to do this. Okay, so take some time to meditate upon and discuss what Christmas is about. Not just a little baby in a manger. The Son of God dying for us and rising for us so that we could have forgiveness. Ultimately, that's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray and ask God to help us remember. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your love, for your goodness and your truth. We thank you for your son. We thank you that Jesus freely chose, no one made him, he freely chose to become a human, to come among us. We praise you for that choice he made on that first Christmas. We thank you that he chose a path of humility. He he chose obscurity. He chose poverty. He chose to walk among us as the least of us. He chose that life so that he could be a servant to all. 
so that he could perfectly obey, so that he could perfectly love, so that he could earn perfect righteousness for us and model to us the life you've called us to. But thank you, Lord God, and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you chose not only the life, you also chose the death. You chose to die in our place, forsaken and abandoned, crushed and pierced. You you chose that for us to take upon yourself all of the evil humanity has ever perpetrated, all of our sin, all of our selfishness, all of our greed. You took it all on you, and you died in our place to wipe it away. And then you rose from the dead so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. We praise you and thank you for that, Jesus. We pray that that incredible gift that you've given to us would motivate us to go give gifts to others. And, and I don't mean Christmas presents, but to go give the gift of our love and our attention and our time and our service to other people. I, I pray that this holiday season that we would... We would be actively showing the love of Jesus, especially to those in need, to those who are living life like like you did, Lord Jesus, in the first few years you had here on earth. I pray that we would intentionally connect with those in need and sacrificially share with them your love in tangible ways. We thank you so much for this opportunity during the Christmas season to to look beyond the decorations and the nice food and the fun presents and see the greater meaning, to see the selflessness and the love and and the grace that you have given to us, Lord Jesus. May we give it to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.